Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Dr. Jason Buell. Jason is a managing director at AnswerLab, the world's largest independent consultancy that's exclusively focused on UX research. At AnswerLab, Jason leads a team of a dozen UX strategists responsible for designing research programs for some of the world's most important and innovative companies. You may have heard of some of these before, companies such as Google, Meta, Amazon, eBay, FedEx, and Wells Fargo. In 2012, Jason was awarded a PhD in Cognitive Neuroscience from Columbia University for his research into cognitive and emotional control. His related academic work has been cited over 5,000 times and features in 16 peer-reviewed publications, including top journals such as Psychological Science, Cerebral Cortex, and Nature Reviews Neuroscience. Someone who believes in the importance and transformative power of education, Jason has maintained his connection to academia. He currently lectures Masters of, of Science in Applied Psychology students in UX research at the University of Southern California. I've followed Jason's thoughtful contributions to the field for some time now, and I can tell you that I have been very much looking forward to this conversation with him on Brave UX today. Jason, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Brendan. Thank you for that warm introduction. I don't get called world-class every day. <laughs> well, you certainly are, sir, and it is good to have you here. And uh, what people won't have realized is that I actually was on mute the first time that I was trying to record that introduction. And we, we almost made it through to the end there, but I'm glad the second time around we got there. I'm glad hey, I'm um, to hear it. <laughs> Hopefully the rest of the conversation will, will stay on record and I, we won't have to redo the whole thing. Hey, Jason, I was, as I do, I, I do some research, as you would probably know, into the people that I have on the show. And one of the things that really captured my attention with you, of which there were a number, but the first thing I wanted to start with was on your LinkedIn profile, there's a photo, a banner uh, behind your profile image, and it has what looks like it's a gothic person that has sand or something running through their fingers, and beneath it, there's a caption, which is the famous uh, Martin Luther King, quote, I have a dream, dot, dot, dot. What is the story of that photo? You know, where were you? What was the point you were trying to make? Who, who were you speaking to? Give us some of the color and context there. Uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, so the event was uh, an event for researchers here in Southern California. It was hosted by ADP out in Pasadena, put together by Nate Bolt, who's the founder of Ethneo. The topic that Nate selected for uh, that event was comparison of UX research and market research. And he knows that I, I teach in the Masters of Applied Psychology at USC, where we do have a lot of folks going into uh, market research as well as UX research. So he invited me a few other folks to speak. The image that was on the screen, that's from Neil Gaiman's Sandman. So ah, that's, uh, yeah, Neil Gaiman, very, accurately. very famous author. Uh-huh. You identified the, the sand uh, accurately. And uh, the Sandman is the, the god of the dream world in the series. So 
I didn't, I wanted to make the point that I had a dream and my dream was UX research, market research and other areas of applied insights coming together and, and working together cohesively without the friction that I think is so, or competition that is so common. And I thought it would be a little rude, honestly, to put Martin Luther King up there for for that particular period. So that is why I chose uh, the image of the Sandman. You, if you haven't already, should have a conversation with Michelle Mora. Uh, she too also uh, believes in bringing the discipline of market research and UX research, these two together and removing some of that friction. I spoke with her a few weeks back on the podcast and I think the episode's out now. So yeah, probably some yeah mutually beneficial territory to mull over there. So you had this dream of removing some of the friction between the disciplines together, these applied insights disciplines. What was your idea? What was the big idea there? How can we do that? And what are some of the, you know, I suppose the practical takeaways that you shared with that audience when you were speaking with them? Yeah, well, you know, I think the good news is it's happening anyway. There's clearly been a trend in recent years, I think on both sides of the aisle, certainly in the UX research space, people are embracing some of these traditional market research techniques. So you know, you're seeing some of the quantitative techniques, uh, Conjoint or Max Diff, for example, brought over, seeing some folks uh, using some of the techniques from areas like mystery shopping. I, I think there's uh, a lot for us to learn. It's important to remember that market research has been around for many, many decades, and they've developed a, a lot of techniques. They have a lot of great resources available. At the same time, I think that market research is increasingly aware of UX research. Uh, digital, of course, is becoming more important for uh, many of the companies that uh, traditionally had strong market research departments and now have to make sure to also bring in UX research. And well, I think there is some pressure happening there. Folks are noticing that there are a lot of great job opportunities in UX research. So I think there's some people who are really trying to cover um, a wider uh, range of topics and methods. And I think it's great. So there's a lot of cross learning. What I would advocate for, and I know it's very hard to do, is for companies that do have robust departments in both areas to try to look for opportunities for integration, remove that competition. I've definitely heard from many folks, particularly at more traditional companies, so not necessarily big tech companies, but companies that have been around a, long, a lot longer than UX research, where the lines are, are uh, quite established and, and held often by the market research folks you know, who've been around for a long time and, and don't want UX research encroaching on their area. I think trying to break that down, maybe have unified leadership across Applied Insights is a great opportunity for some of those companies to explore. Yeah, I really like that idea of unified leadership. You mentioned market research in some traditional and established companies potentially being a little bit uh, wary of UX research. It sounded like a bit of patch protection perhaps going on there. Mm -hmm. This is not uncommon uh, across many disciplines, actually. UX can sometimes feel like that about product management, getting more involved in research and in other areas. What's behind this? You know, what is what is the fear that we have or what is it that we think we're trying to protect when we do get, you know, a bit, in the way of people who are trying to integrate some perspectives with an established discipline? Yeah, you know, I think if you ask people, probably often they would say they're trying to protect uh, research quality, integrity of their discipline. And I, I think that is true. Oh, of course, I think also people are worried, worried about losing power, influence, potentially in some cases worried about losing budget or headcount or jobs. So, and I think those are all legitimate concerns. But partnership is is such a strong way to uh, to bring the the best insights, the best skills uh, together. Especially, I think within the research domain. In my opinion, research is research, 
uh, and uh, a, a great researcher actually can operate very successfully across some of these domains. I think we have so much to learn from each other. So I see tremendous benefit there, certainly within the sphere of research as much as possible. It sounds almost like it's status that's at stake across the board. And if we're to truly get the benefits of merging these fields, or at least temporarily bringing these perspectives together, we need to find a way to do that, that is mutually beneficial to the status of, of, of the various disciplines in which we're trying to integrate. Yeah, for sure. I think that's a great point. The more we can make it a win-win, the more mm. these things can happen. It's funny for me, you know, I spent a long time in academia where mm. well, sure you have all kinds of competition, uh, but it's really, you don't have these large, highly integrated organizations that are modern, large companies. Universities can be quite large, but they're, they're really more like a franchise model in many ways. Uh, individual researchers are kind of off doing their own thing uh, to a large degree. But in companies, there's so much integration. I think that's what breeds actually that kind of competition because you really are competing at, at some level for the same resources, for the, you know, the same impact. Uh, so I think it's harder to bring folks together and you really have to structure that, that win-win quality. Yeah, that's a key point. I'm glad you mentioned academia and education specifically. I, I had a look at your personal website, which I realize is maybe a, a little out of date yeah. yet, but you did have a really interesting section on there, which was talking about your teaching philosophy. Mm. And I think it was the fourth principle where you say, and I'll quote you now, I want students to enjoy learning and thinking in my class. Most importantly, I have fun when I teach. I believe enthusiasm is contagious and I want my students to see how much I love what I do. Mm. Why is it that enthusiasm and that love for what you do so important to you? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think it's, it's just how I'm built. Uh, I like to go hard uh, on things and I always have. Um, and I especially, I love thinking, I love analyzing. That's why I love being a researcher. Um, it's actually why I love teaching as well, uh, because you're constantly asked difficult questions. You have to take that step back and think, think from a different perspective, think of a different way to connect to all the different learners in your classroom. And I just really enjoy it. I genuinely really enjoy it. Oh, I, I want students to be touched by that. I think it makes learning a lot more fun and I want them to enjoy grappling with problems. And I think we all, of course, like easy answers. There's something really satisfying about knowing the right answer. But really satisfying is to have to work on something over time to get to an answer and to recognize that it doesn't have to be scary or terrible or super stressful to go through that process to get to an answer. I think that's a key part of the, uh, the mindset of a successful researcher. Now, that's interesting because you talked about learning being enjoyable and being fun, but you also talked about it being difficult and that it's it almost sounded like you were suggesting that it's things are more fun or more enjoyable when you have to work to get to the insight or the outcome. Yeah, well, you know, think about games, right? Like video games, usually it's all about getting the right level of challenge. Like if they're too easy, they're not fun. If they're impossible, they're not typically very fun, not very much fun either. And so I think that's the, when you're, when you're hunting for insights as a researcher, I think, Oh, that the right amount of challenge really kind of makes it into a game. And of course, ultimately, there are going to be tough questions. There are going to be tough questions that you do have to really grapple with and struggle with. Learning to not be afraid of that, to dive into it, to take the time is key for being a researcher and also a student. Now, was there a professor or perhaps somebody else in your life that was responsible for passing on that enthusiasm to you? Yeah, you know, so many. I was really lucky. I went to uh, a fantastic high school with really small classes. Uh, where I was really uh, taught to think. And I think 
there was a, a genuine enthusiasm for thinking uh, in my high school, uh, Trinity School in, in, in New York City, for any New Yorkers out there. And then uh, really blessed to go to also a fantastic college. I went to Pomona College, which I, I chose in part because of the small classes uh, that focus on rigorous thinking and writing. But I would have to say, most of all, um, if I had to credit someone, I would have to credit my PhD advisor, Tor Wager, and really uh, everybody who influenced me significantly during my uh, PhD process. Also, Kevin Oxner and Ed Smith were two other uh, mentors for me. And I think that's where I really learned uh, that process of diving in, engaging, sticking with something, recognizing that it can really take time and um, that I don't have to be afraid of that process. Mm, yeah, that's such a, a key gift to have been given or at least to have teased out from within you and your education clearly you know it's something you take really seriously and you've obviously been fortunate um, and no doubt worked really hard to study at the institutions that you have studied at I noticed that while you were studying at Columbia towards your PhD you received a scholarship from the Ruth Burt Fund mm. and you're now a member of the board there what is the Ruth Burt Fund and who's it for? Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, the Ruth Burt Fund is a scholarship organization. It's really pretty unique in that uh, we give scholarships to folks who are motivated spiritually. And, and that can be, that's very broadly defined by us. And so people uh, define it in many ways. But we give scholarships to folks to pursue educational goals who have this spiritual motivation. And then I think what's different from a lot of organizations, a lot of scholarship organizations out there, is that we focus not just on supporting them financially, but on uh, creating an experience of fellowship for them. Uh, so we have programming uh, that is um, some, of which, some of which is required uh, that they participate in to really uh, get to know the other fellows and to uh, also get to know the fellows who are off-grant. So you're considered a fellow for life once you've received a scholarship from the Ruth Burt. And actually, it's really amazing. A lot of our events, folks come back who uh, got the scholarship even decades ago. And some people come back almost every time to our, our flagship uh, events, which occur twice a year. Uh, so, yeah, that's the, the Ruth Burt. And I have been on the board for, well, I think about a decade. I'm actually uh, stepping down next year. Um, but, yeah, fantastic organization. If anyone's if that fits anyone out there, definitely encourage them to take a look at the website and uh, apply. And we do fund, actually, a, a lot of organizations only fund undergraduate students or doctoral students. We fund folks in those categories, but also master's students. Mm -hmm. Now, what people who are listening to the audio version of this won't see, clearly, because they'll be listening, not looking, is the statues of Buddha that you have in your background there. And this is sort of making sense for, to me now because I asked you about these statues before we hit record. And you'd mentioned that after high school, you took some time off and out from education as such, and you worked on your meditation practice from what it sounded like. Was that the spirit, like the, the, the width of the spiritual lens that the Ruth Burt Foundation is interested in? Is that encompassing of multiple faiths or multiple belief systems? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, that's uh, strongly encouraged by the fund when we select folks for uh, the class every year. Uh, we do try to bring in a, a range of perspectives, and it's really a requirement that uh, that you're open to other perspectives. So sometimes we get these people who look fantastic in many ways, but they believe there is one truth, and they're not typically going to be a good fit for the Ruth Burt. <laughs> so uh, we, we try to bring uh, in people who have that more ecumenical uh, perspective, including we actually have folks who are agnostic or even atheist 
but still see themselves and can articulate why they see themselves uh, as motivated by spiritual values in their educational um, pursuits. And was your time developing your Zen practice, was that the standout or one of the standout features that the Ruth Burt Foundation your fund looked at when you were applying? Oh, I think so. I wasn't part of the conversations, mm -hmm. but yeah, that um, I believe was mm -hmm. uh, how I explained my motivation to pursue science at the time they funded me while I was working on my PhD at Columbia. Mm. Tell me a little bit about Albert and Tony Ruth Burt. Yeah, so uh, those are the founders of the, the Ruth Burt Fund. Well, I never got to meet either of them. They both passed away before I became involved with the fund. But as I understand it, they really wanted to support uh, spiritual growth. They felt that's what was really necessary in the world, having, been, um, having seen the Holocaust and the devastation of World War II. Uh, and so they started doing, uh, doing so, well, oh, I think about 70 years ago now. Also, they were uh, really interested in uh, teaching and really wanted to support people who wanted to become teachers, and they're really interested in social justice. And so that was also a big part of their early vision to support people who had a, a spiritually motivated focus that was bringing them to either a teaching career or a social justice career. Given their experience in escaping Nazi Germany and subsequent career and life and opportunity that they're able to seize upon in America, what do you think they would say if they were here with you and I now about things that we've recently observed in our democracies, you know, things like, you know, populist politicians, the quite right outrage at the way African-Americans have been treated in America, the war in Ukraine, you know, what do you suspect they would share with us if they were here with us now? No, I have to imagine they'd be quite surprised. Uh... To, to see where history is trending right now. And I have to imagine they'd be quite disturbed. I, I do believe, based on what I know uh, from their writings and from the many folks I've talked to who, who knew them, that, that they would believe part of the solution actually was uh, spirituality and was for all of us exploring our spirituality and exploring spirituality broadly and really bringing people together. And, and that's why they made fellowship such a big part of the fund. As I understand it, um, Tony, she, she lived in New York City and um, a big part of what she did is she just kept like a Rolodex of everybody who was in the fund and she was always uh, connecting the dots. So whenever she, someone new came into the fund or she was having a conversation, she learned about an interest or something that they were thinking about as a career, uh, she would say, oh, I know who you should talk to. And then she would make the connection, make the phone call, uh, bring people together for lunch. Uh, so I think that uh, informal fellowship, all the different ways of bringing together, uh, people together was really important to them. And yeah, you have to uh, wonder if maybe our world doesn't need more of that now, uh, especially here in this country, I think in many countries right now, where uh, there seems to be increasing polarization. Yeah, I think we need to be very aware and cautious when it comes to binary perspectives. And it seems to me at least that not a lot of great things happen when we live in a world of absolutes and black and whites. And it's interesting listening to, to you describe earlier on the challenge of integrating disciplines and the perspectives around disciplines, and then us talking now about some of the broader challenges in the world, they at least seem in part attributable to our failure to see each other and integrate each other's perspectives. Yeah. Or at least talk, you know, like I think speaking respectfully to each other, we don't always have to agree. You know, maybe, maybe it's not possible to integrate our perspectives all the time, but at least if we can speak politely try to learn from one another, try to see the perspective, maybe then we can find common ground.
or at least avoid the worst othering and, and the, the terrible outcomes that come from that. So your PhD, it was no lightweight effort, <laughs> as far as I can tell. And I'm, I'm not an academic, so this is just my perspective looking at what it is that you did. And clearly Columbia University is an excellent university, so I can't imagine it was an easy place to get into or to uh, be awarded a PhD from. And I mentioned in, in your introduction that you were looking at how we control our cognitions and our emotions. And we've been in a particularly emotional state, the world, uh, as of late, and we still are. So I, I was curious just about this work that you did, and I'm imagining it's looking at the individual uh, or a population of individuals. Just how good are we at controlling our cognitions and our emotions? Yeah, that's an interesting question, and it's a hard one to answer because what's the baseline? You know, what is what is good or, or bad? I mean, I think we're incredible. Honestly, I think we're really good. I have two young children. I have a, a son who's three and a daughter who actually turned five today. Uh, oh, happy birthday. <laughs> uh, thank you. Let me tell you, uh, they're not so great at controlling their emotions. So we're, we're all like world, pretty much all of us uh, adults are world-class experts. Uh, and of course, you know, there are many interesting pathologies. Uh, you can see um, certain kinds of brain damage that lead to a very sudden, profound loss of ability to control our behavior and our emotions. So uh, I think our abilities are, are astounding and profound. And yet, you know, there, there's more opportunity clearly for, for a lot of us. Being hmm. <laughs> so what advice or what did you learn? from your PhD and subsequent work on this, that the next time, for example, there's a stakeholder challenging mm. the findings of a research report and our listeners can feel their blood start to boil, you know, what, what should they do in that moment? Is there any hope for them or are they, are they too far gone by that point? Yeah, I think there's often hope. Well, let's see, I would say uh, two things. And, you know, I'm not a clinician. I'm sure a clinician could give better advice, but um, I would say, one, that there are many different techniques for um, regulating one's emotions. Uh, and so it's good to have a few different tools in the tool bag and then use the one that's the right fit for the moment. And that might just be the one that works or feels like it's going to work for you at the moment. I would also say, I think one that is really powerful that uh, people don't always don't always think about is distancing and specifically temporal distancing. This one helps me a lot. You know, try to imagine what are you going to think about this in a day? five days, a year, you know, you may have to pick the appropriate time frame, but uh, sometimes as soon as you remove yourself from the moment, just mentally, you can, you'll realize that actually you're not going to care that much and you know, some, some time in the future and that can help. So you should get that sort of glassy eyed look in that meeting and sort of stare out the yeah. window for a moment and, a moment. and just detach. Okay. If your blood is really boiling, that might be the yeah. best choice. Yeah, definitely. Hey, uh, you, you've said in the past, and I'm just going to paraphrase you now, that you didn't consider a career pathway outside of academia until you finished your PhD. And you also said, and what I was listening to, you said that you didn't feel like you set yourself up for success as well as you could have. Now, I thought this was really interesting because looking looking at you on paper, looking at your LinkedIn profile, you know, this is coming from someone who's now a managing director of Answer Lab. And as I mentioned, that's the largest UX research consultancy in the world. You're leading a team of a dozen strategists and you worked on some of the most impressive businesses that are available to work on. It seems to have worked out okay for you. You know, what is it that you felt that you were missing or could have done better? 
Yeah, well, and you know, I think going back to our uh, earlier conversation, I feel blessed to have the education that I've had because I think that's what allowed me to pivot and adapt so well multiple times in my life and my career, in fact, including as I move from academic research uh, through product development into UX research. That said, yeah, what, did I, what do I think I missed? First of all, I had never heard of UX research and I was really not aware of alternatives. I think things have changed a lot and I think this is a great thing. But uh, when I was working on my PhD, I heard very little conversation about alternative routes. They were generally considered to be a route of failure. It was a failure if you did, didn't go on in academia. Um, and it, there just wasn't a lot of awareness or visibility. You know, it was an earlier era technologically. So LinkedIn existed, you know, but I, I don't know, I don't recall anyone really being on it or using it to learn about um, alternatives. I remember meeting a few alums actually from the psychology department uh, at Columbia at an event and uh, several of them were in market research. And I was like, oh, how interesting, you know, but I never really never heard about it. I never heard about it in any other capacity. Um, and certainly, as I said, UX uh, research was just not on the radar at all. And I don't think it was for anyone else. And it's just that, you know, I was um, naive. Now, I think it's really quite different. I believe almost every student in a psychology department and probably also in anthropology and a variety of other disciplines is aware of UX research as an option. And I think uh, students there are much savvier about uh, alternatives. I mean, for example, I had never heard of anyone doing an internship while they're working on their PhD. And I know a lot of people now who have done that or are doing that. So yeah, I think it's a, it's a better world for those PhD students to have those opportunities. And then I also have to admit that I think I also just, this is probably my, my intensity. Uh, you know, I was just really laser focused on the academic work I was doing and um, probably should have paid a little more attention earlier to some alternatives, but you know, I just didn't, I was really passionate about it. Uh, I really didn't, um, didn't imagine I was going to want to go in another direction until really one day I was like, Oh, you know, wait a second, maybe this isn't a great fit for all of my goals and uh, what I want to do overall with my life. Well, let's, I want to go into that with you. And you mentioned that there was potentially a view in academia that if you didn't continue with academia as a career, that it was viewed as failure. Did you fail? You know, I don't see see it as a failure. I think an academic life is a is a great life. I think there's a, a lot that's really wonderful about that life. My wife is an academic uh, here at UCLA, uh, and there's ups and downs, of course. But you know, mostly, I think she loves what she does, and I think overall, it fits really well into her life. You know, I think there are always parts of me that that miss academia and think about uh, some of the things that I would have loved to have done. But in the end. I think there were some things about it that just weren't a, a fit for me personally. And, you know, you have to look at the whole package. Certainly being able to make more money outside of academia you know, has been really meaningful and important for me and my family. And there are other great things. There are, I mean, there's so many great things about working in industry, like working on products that impact a, a huge number of people soon. I would say also the speed actually is really satisfying for me. Academic work is great, but it can just take a long time to do that really, really careful work. So... Yeah, while I, um, I, I certainly some days have some regrets, um, overall, you know, see a lot of positive for me in the transition and totally support people who stay in academia. I think, you know, th there's many a Twitter battle where it, it becomes quite black or white. And I think actually there are, there are pluses and minuses to both paths. I'm not sure if this saying travels well outside of New Zealand, but there are horses for courses. I don't know exactly what Does that, that means. Horses for courses, <laughs> like different, different courses or different sort of horses. Is that? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you got to know. Gotcha. Like you got to know what kind of horse you are, to what kind of course is, is yeah. best for you. you know, one of the yeah, one of the things that you mentioned 
just a moment ago actually was money mm-hmm. and money is a as a area of our culture which has some taboo related to it usually it is applied to the personal context like i would never sit here and ask you for example what your salary is because that would be quite rude but i feel like as a profession it's important for us in ux to talk about money and its role in enabling other things in our lives and you said that it's been quite a beneficial thing for your family that decision for you to move into the private sector you have said and i'll just quote you again here i was really naive about money in many ways i was unaware of how expensive life is i underestimated my needs tremendously it sounded like there might have been a moment of truth for you there somewhere yeah yeah, was that? for sure. Well, I guess, I, you know, I don't know if it was really one specific moment, but my wife and I were both students at Columbia in New York City. Uh, it's very expensive in New York City. Um, mm-hmm. And although I think we had, um, I remember when I was trying to pick which program I wanted to go to, I looked at the stipends and you get paid typically uh, in this country when you when you work on a PhD, you get paid a stipend every year. And I remember I, I looking at the stipends in Columbia offered the highest stipend, but when you put it into a cost of living uh, calculator, it was like mm. the lowest or one of the lowest. So, yeah, there, you know, there were some difficult years there. Mm-hmm. And I think I remember, maybe this is a moment. I remember when we decided we wanted to buy a couch, when we, when we moved in together, we wanted to buy a couch. And um, I was like, oh man, couches are really expensive. You know, like this is the kind of stuff I think I just never really thought about the stuff that's around my house, but it really adds up. And I remember we bought the least expensive couch that we found to be tolerably comfortable, which was from Ikea. And what we didn't realize, something about the lighting at that Ikea, we didn't realize that it was um, like eggplant color. So we got it home and we thought it was like, it was like, I think we thought it was like black or you know, some darker color and we got it home and it was like this kind of weird eggplant colored couch that we had for, <laughs> for many years living in New York. But, um, Must be satisfying to sell that one. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that one um, we could sell in the end. I think that one, that one was the, the dumpster, but. Um, yeah, I think that that was a moment. I think actually when we got that uh, that couch shopping for that couch, and I was like, oh man, things really are expensive. And of course, you know, some of it. I think it's just so interesting. I've seen a lot of people, uh, my generation. I, I don't know how this plays out across the world, but here in the U.S., I think uh, there are many folks like me who felt like, hey, you know, of course you need some money, but maybe I don't need to have the fanciest house or the two houses or this or that. You know, I really didn't want a lot of those things. I still don't, but what's so tricky is how expensive, you know, the price of housing has just gone up uh, so many fold, you know, over the last two decades. So I think what made sense when I was, I don't know, a teenager and thinking about my life uh, turned out to not make any sense, you know, 15 years later. Um, it's, you know, price of education is, is another example, price of childcare, price of healthcare, they've all just gone up far past inflation. Uh, and so um, I think it's many folks, myself included, probably made choices that made sense based on what things were like a few decades ago. And then as things changed, we had to adapt uh, to make sure we could have the families that we wanted. You know, I always wanted to have a few kids. I have two, got another one coming in August. And I couldn't have done that, I think, if I hadn't made the switch to industry. And and critically, when I did, I needed to make the switch to make the money to get things to uh, in a place where I could have those kids. That's a very understandable and very pragmatic approach. And I have taken a similar approach in, in my life. What is it that you want people in UX and potentially product that are listening to this to know about money when it, as it relates to their careers? Mm. Yeah, you know, well, uh, you know, maybe first I'll speak to folks who are in academia, and I, I think it's 
it's pretty clear now, but I definitely would encourage folks, especially younger folks. I think actually it's, it's almost the folks before they go and uh, before they start an academic path. It's actually like the college students who maybe need to think about this the most, or people who are research assistants in a lab preparing for a PhD uh, application process. I would say just really take a look at what those salaries look like. And a lot of them are, are publicly available. In the U.S., we typically publish uh, compensation for public universities. Uh, so you can at least you know get a sense, and of course there's lots of other sources of information, and compare those to uh, what you can make in industry. And you know if if you're if you can do well with that academic salary uh, and, and some of the other limitations in academic life, that's great. But I think there are a lot of people who it's really not a fit when they actually sit down and look at the numbers. And I never did that, you know, when I was you know when I was 18, when I was 22, or whatever. I never really sat down and actually looked closely at the numbers. So I would definitely say that for folks who are earlier in their career. You know, I think earlier you were talking about that we do consider it impolite to ask people uh, what their compensation is. Uh, and there are a number of reasons it can be uh, problematic to discuss that. I really love the, uh, the efforts that enabled by technology we're seeing more and more of where people are anonymously sharing uh, salary and, and um, even better full compensation information. And in our field, really appreciate the uh, very successful effort by Amy Santee last year to encourage lots of people to enter their information, people across the UX space in a, in a Google Sheet. It's a great resource. I encourage people to jump on and take a look. And I know she is close to releasing another one for this year that is, has been improved in a number of ways. Uh, so it uh, should be a, a really fantastic source of information. And it's great because you don't just get the averages. You can actually see specific uh, compensation packages, details, people give advice about how they negotiated those, which is really interesting. Some characteristics about themselves, so you can get a sense of you know what to expect if you have a certain level of experience, live in a certain place. Uh, I think that's fantastic. And I, I uh, think the more we can have of that, the better. Amy is fantastic. And I'll, I will link to that particular resource and the new one if it's out um, by the time I publish this yeah. in the show notes. Yeah, re really useful and really important for people to know what they're worth. And one of the ways that you can do that is by getting or try to get an objective read on what the market is mm -hmm. paying. Uh, really, really critical. Yeah. I was also listening to you, Jason, reflect on your experience of entering business, mm -hmm. going from you know the academic world into the business world. And I'll quote you again now. You said, I had heard when I was in academia that academia was this old person's network all about who you know, and that business is so much more meritocratic. That is absolutely wrong. That is the opposite of truth in my experience. So what was your experience? What was the experience that made you realize that the opposite of what you had thought was true? Yeah, well, first getting the job that I, my first job at Answer Lab was through someone I knew, I, someone from my uh, academic days, we had met each other at um, a summer institute. So I think academics do, we come together typically in the summer and have an intense period of learning. So I met her, she had left academia a few years before and eventually found her way to Answer Lab at the time. She was running the New York office and uh, I connected to her and uh, she was very helpful and explained to me what uh, the opportunities were for me at Answer Lab and uh, facilitating me coming to Answer Lab. So I had that, own, my, that personal experience, but What's really made that clear to me is uh, seeing my students get jobs over the years. And um, for sure, you know, now I've, I've, um, many dozens enter this field, other fields as well. Oh my gosh, the ones who invest the most in networking are the most successful, the ones who blindly apply 
without knowing folks. Oh, you know, eventually they, they get jobs too, but oh, they, they have to put in a lot more applications, that's for sure. Um, you know, so I think uh, knowing people, getting the referral, of course, uh, can be very helpful, but also it's really the insider knowledge and the coaching and the support uh, that people get that makes a huge difference. And I think that's something that is surprising to a lot of folks from academia because uh, we talk about academia as, as having a, a problem in that way. But what's fantastic about academia is that most of your work is public. So yeah, the whole goal is to publish things, put them out into the public sphere. And, uh, you know, if you want to see how good this person is, you can go read their papers. And there is also a big focus on building your CV and recording all of your accomplishments and getting grants and so on. So you really have a very clear um, track record uh, that someone can use to evaluate you. And that doesn't really exist in the private sector. Very rarely can things be uh, publicly shared. Certainly, if they're shared, they're, they're very rarely published and accessible to anyone. Mm. What role has LinkedIn played in your own career success and that of which you've observed in your students mm. in more recent years? Yeah, you know, I don't know uh, that LinkedIn has played a huge role in my own career success. I think I learned a lot through LinkedIn. I think it's really evolved from being a helpful Rolodex, essentially, to being more of a true social media platform. And, and I do see a lot of really great conversations. I think it's actually really helpful that you can put more content into your posts. Uh, it's so challenging on Twitter, you know, the, uh, the, the small tweets and linking them and so on. So I, I see just a lot of thoughtful posts on LinkedIn. I think also because it's so closely connected to your name and deployment, I think people behave better on LinkedIn and have better conversations. So I think it's a fantastic learning resource. And I do encourage it's something that also I find when I'm mentoring folks, they're sometimes surprised to learn how valuable LinkedIn is in that way. And so I always encourage folks, go on and just follow people. You don't have to know them or connect to them. Just follow a bunch of people. I think it's um, a great resource in that way. Uh, so it's benefited me personally in that way. Oh, and I guess meeting all kinds of folks, and, and including folks like you. Uh, so I guess it has benefited my career at least a little bit um, as well. For my students, I see it's absolutely huge. It's such a great way to look at different career paths. Uh, it's such a great way to actually track all the alums. That's a huge challenge for a lot of academic programs uh, and made much easier. And um, it's democratized by having so much of the information available. Pretty much everyone's on LinkedIn. So it's really useful for them in that way. And also, you know, I don't know if this is true in every field, but I would say in UX research, people are generally pretty open to talking and providing mentorship. And so I, uh, my students do reach out a lot to folks on LinkedIn and, and do get a lot of great uh, replies, maybe not everyone. I say, I think generally they say somewhere between, you know, one in five and one in 10, maybe uh, respond. Um, but it's a, an opportunity to not just speak to a UX researcher, but to find someone who's doing a more um, niche kind of research uh, that might particularly appeal to you. Uh, I think that's a, a real special benefit of LinkedIn. Mm. You know, you're, you're someone who is an educator still, you know, you kind of, in your LinkedIn profile, Somewhat jokingly, you make yourself sound a little bit like Batman. <laughs> by day, you're Bruce Wayne yeah. at Answer Lab, and by night, you're um, you know the Batman at USC. When it comes to the dreams that we sell students with education, and I know that you have a particular university-styled lens here, there's been some criticism from some corners of the industry that the quality of the education that students are receiving for the money that they're paying may not line up. Now, you're also a hiring manager, 
So I was curious to ask, have you ever hired someone from a boot camp mm. or that didn't have traditional academic training and research for a UXR position? Yeah, I should clarify that when I'm hiring, I am hiring for these strategy roles, which are kind of a, a complicated, require a complicated overlap of skills. So a little different from hire, than hiring for a UX researcher. Um, that said, you know, certainly I, I have hired uh, folks whose uh, educational background or germane educational background was from a boot camp. They had to have other strengths, you know, significant other strengths for sure. But um, that could be the, the final piece that convinces us to bring someone in for an interview for one of our strategy roles. And, and more broadly, I'd answer that. But I know we've had some really successful researchers whose UX research background was from a boot camp. So I think it definitely can work. You know, my feeling, and I think many people in the field uh, feel that on average, uh, boot camps out there aren't doing enough and are not a replacement for a more rigorous master's degree um, or a more advanced degree. So I think the people who are really successful coming with a boot uh, camp background have a lot of other strengths as well. What are those strengths? What I mean, what comes to mind, you know, the people that you've met in, in the past few years that have had that background, what strengths do they possess that enabled them to shine brighter than perhaps their academic qualification? Yeah, I would say ultimately, I mean, it's the skills that make you a great researcher, the ability to figure out what the question is, to ask good questions. I think, I think the ability to pay really close attention and dive in and look for more and more detail is a critical researcher skill. And then you know, I would say communication and really what I mean there, I think, is the thinking that goes behind putting together an argument and analysis, putting together insights, um, being able to present them in a way that people can understand uh, whether it's written or, or really probably typically you need some of both. So I think those core skills are really critical. And if, well, going back to, uh, you know, when I was reflecting on my own experience, I think uh, folks who have a really strong educational background develop those skills in another domain. Sometimes a boot camp just gives them the focus that they need into our world, and then they can take that and run with that. You know, I, I don't think you're typically getting as much out of those programs from what I've seen and heard uh, as you do from um, a more rigorous uh, and presumably just longer program that I would describe most master's programs. That's interesting. It almost sounded like you were suggesting that for people with master's degrees or above that a boot camp might be a suitable bridging mm. mechanism into industry, but not something that people should rely on necessarily entirely on its own. Yeah. You know, and again, I know it's worked for folks, so I don't want to discount um, that possibility. Uh, but um, I do think that, you know, it's more limited. I think probably sometimes a lot of those boot camps, they are, they're, they're trying to make money. And so, you know, they, they're, they're selling uh, a vision, uh, which maybe doesn't always come to pass. I don't know how easy it is actually to do, but I think that's a place where I'd really try to look the alums and see how much success they've had. And, and you can't just look at, of course, the successful ones. You have to have um, some broad view and certainly enabled by LinkedIn. Um, that's one of the things I'm really proud of our program at USC, which is way more expensive than a boot camp. Uh, I believe it, uh, you know, all in is going to cost you something like $70,000. Uh, so it's really, it's a significant um, outlay as well as, of course, you know, the opportunity costs of that, that lost period of time. But yes, uh, that's an important yeah, thing. You definitely have to factor that into the equation. That's it. I think go on LinkedIn, see where our alums are, and you can just see tremendous success. You know, you're not going to see um, a lot of people who didn't get 
dramatic value add, I think, out of the debris. You know, something that has come into focus for the field as a result of recent events and, and possibly should have always been a focus is needing to make research practices more inclusive. And that's both with regards to who's doing the research, but also who's participating in the research. What is it that you have been doing and the, and the team at Answer Lab have been doing to address both sides of that challenge? Yeah, thanks for asking about that. It's been a huge focus for us here at Answer Lab really for um, the last several years. And I think we've made some great progress. I can speak more to the latter because I've been more personally involved in that. Uh, so maybe I'll, I'll start there and uh, I'll say one thing we start to ask ourselves is, well, actually, who are we doing this research with? Uh, and we realized that we didn't have any way of looking across uh, across studies to see, well, even a simple question like uh, how many of our participants identify as Black or African-American? We just really didn't have a way of knowing that. And, you know, of course, we want to make sure that uh, we're getting a, uh, a representation that uh, more or less matches uh, population numbers and not way undershooting for key demographics like that. So it actually took a lot of um, infrastructure building to uh, create a system that would integrate you know, all the different kinds of studies that we're doing with all the different kinds of questions uh, and to also try to make sure that the key areas that we wanted to, to focus on were being asked as much as possible. Sometimes it's not possible, client won't permit it, for example, it's not an appropriate fit for that research for some reason. Uh, but what we started doing is broadly acquiring that information, integrating it, and then looking at it to make sure that we're not falling way short in any area that we want to prioritize. And uh, well, it's the, you know, the truth is it's actually quite hard because there are some areas that we discover we're falling short in. And so working hard now to try to bring up those numbers. Uh, and it's a real challenge. It's a real challenge to do that. What impact, if any, have you observed, and it could just be anecdotally, on research as a result of being more intentional about how inclusive it is of those demographics that you've spoken about? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's a great question. And uh, I think that it, there are a number of possible benefits. And like so many things in life, you know, you don't know if you don't go out and do the research. Now, you know, certainly uh, been lots of times when uh, folks have pointed out something as uh, potentially offensive or um, uninclusive that you know, one could easily miss, whether it's the uh, the photographs on a website or the language used uh, in a sign-up form. And I think uh, these are areas where we can develop best practices over time. And, and like, you know, we don't need to bring in someone because we have the best practices that uh, tell us how we want to set these things up. But there's always new areas that we might otherwise miss, uh, especially as technology grows and have new kinds of domains, and, uh, voice experiences, and so on. I think also a lot of research traditionally has been done on folks who are more like the folks who are conducting the research, uh, more representative of the folks who are conducting the research than the, the population as a whole. And specifically, that means younger and uh, more urban and uh, more well-educated. You see that at university with um, yeah. academic research as well, right? The student population is often the first go-to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and that's, that's been a well-documented and well-studied uh, challenge. And it turns out sometimes it doesn't matter at all if you're studying um, a lot of topics in vision science, actually, it doesn't matter too much. It might for some, but for many, it doesn't. So sometimes, you know, you have to figure out what matters for your research. In some areas, it, it makes a huge difference. Um, and I think especially... I was just going to say, I spoke with Katie Swindler uh, maybe six or seven weeks ago, and she'd just um, written a, 
book on um, designing for the human stress response. And part of her research for writing the book, she discovered that a lot of the research that had been done on the human stress response was done through the US military. And of course, there's a certain type of person that is more likely to serve in the US military and be available to be studied under high stress situations. So there's a bit of a call in that particular sphere to look more broadly at uh, stress response and other people. And I know in medicine also, it's often had a bias towards men, for, for example, over women. And so some of the conclusions that have been drawn aren't necessarily as, um, as uh, watertight as they, they may have been if they'd drawn from a broader sample of people. Yeah, absolutely. And with really tragic results, I mean, literally people have died as a result uh, of those blinders. Now, we may not have the same stakes with a lot of the research that we're doing, um, but it, I do think that uh, there is a lot of opportunity as we broaden that lens to actually get better findings, get more insights. It's sometimes uh, bringing in folks who are older, for example, and I can say this now, you know, the, the years are ticking and I will say like, I don't have the same ability to, to, uh, to throw myself into new, new technologies that I did, you know, when I was younger, I definitely see, I remember that's when I know the defining moment there It was when I first tried Snapchat and I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> it was, it was, it was <laughs> a lot harder this? for me to pick up than, you know, it clearly was for, for people who are younger. So I think, uh, expanding into older demographic and also, uh, all those other uh, demographics that I mentioned is a way of, uh, of stress testing our products to some degree and uh, something I, I would encourage everyone just from a, a strict evaluative usability perspective to do just so you can uh, push your product teams to make more usable products. Mm. Well, let, let's talk about that. Uh, we'll, we'll start uh, somewhere else and we'll, we'll get into your paper, The Best of Times for UX Research, The Worst of Times for Usability Research. I just want to talk to you about that though, because in that paper, you suggested that uh, recently UX research was ranked the 39th best job in America by CNN and Payscale. What needs to happen for it to be ranked number one? Oh, geez. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what's number one. Um, so I, I don't know how stiff the, the competition is there. Well, hopefully there weren't just 39 uh, careers looked at on the list. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think, uh, I think 39 was an excellent uh, ranking. Yeah, you know, I think it's a great career. I think it's a great career if you're the kind of person who likes to ask questions, who likes to wrestle with data, qualitative and quantitative. Uh, it's not for everyone, but it's super fun for people who love to do that, who want to use their minds and have impact. Uh, and it also happens to be uh, a really well-paying job, which is fantastic. Uh, you know, will it always be? I don't know. But I think right now it really is in a fantastic sweet spot. And demand is, um, is quite high right now. Uh, I think globally, certainly here in the U.S., we're just seeing tremendous demand. So it's a very exciting field to get into. And I think probably, I'm, I, again, I don't know what the competition is, but uh, I think it is an even better field to get into than I think a few years back when they did that ranking. Yeah, and you highlighted, and I think it was in that same paper, it might have been something else that I was listening or reading of yours, that the career ladder that is now available to researchers has changed even in the sort of seven or eight years since you entered into the private sector. And you've suggested that we're now seeing more people in director, even maybe up to C-suite level in terms of chief research officers appearing, but also that the the starting point for the industry is, or the career is, is um, more accessible now with associate roles becoming available and more internships and these sorts of things. 
my observation, again, it's anecdotal, is that often, though, the most senior research leader still reports into someone more senior from either uh, a design uh, org background or the product org. If that's something that you agree with, I'd be interested in your perspective on why that may be. And if it's not something that you agree with or it hasn't been your observation, I'd be interested to hear what your observation is. Yeah, definitely agree. Uh, and I think the reasons are probably, I think there's probably two big reasons. One is those professions and most companies, those orgs are just much larger and also they're older. They've been around longer. So uh, I think it's uh, going to be a long time before UX research can you know, report all the way up. Uh, and, and you have folks in the C-suite with a, a researcher title consistently, um, you know, if, if we ever get there. But the, Do but we need that? Effort, which is exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. It's great to see more director roles, senior director, um, yeah. maybe even the odd VP. Do we need SVP and C-suite research leaders? I don't think need. I, I think, I don't know, maybe it's a nice to have you know, for our field just so there are more opportunities and so there's more penetration to the highest levels uh, of an organization. I mean, I think, I, I believe in the value of research. And I think the higher we can bring the conversation and uh, the the larger we can make the organizations within reason, the, the more benefits there are for uh, really many companies. I think, I think most companies out there need more research, not less, you know, and more need to pay more attention at all levels to research uh, than they currently are. So I do think there's a lot of opportunity there. And I think we'll, I think we'll see the latter um, continue to, to grow and the orgs continue to grow. I was, I, I pay attention to it. Uh, in part because it's something I remember someone warned me when I was thinking about fully committing to this field and leaving the, the startup that uh, I've been working with. And I said, you know, but there's not a lot of um, space to grow. You know, like how high can you go? You can you know, become a senior researcher. There's just not much beyond that. And clearly in, in you know, the last seven, eight years, whatever it was, since someone told me that, you know, we, we now do see that there are um, a, a lot more levels that people are reaching. So I think that warning, maybe it's still there, but less relevant for a lot of folks. Uh, so much more growth potential. And, and what's critical too is we're seeing the growth in the other end of the ladder. And uh, you know, I'm very sensitive to this now because of my students and, and other folks that I mentor are so daunting to enter this field when every posting out there says you need three to five years. And there, a few years ago, there were very, very few internships, very few uh, university grad positions, very few associate entry uh, early career early, early career type positions. And there still aren't enough and still very challenging for folks, but there are so many more than there once were. Um, so it's it's easier to find the first rung or two of the ladder you know, by a good margin than really even just two years ago. Yeah, I think your paper suggested that the UXR part of the UX field itself is actually growing at a rate of around 25% a year. And that's, <clears throat> firstly, that's wonderful news, really, really, truly great news that we're getting more insight into informing the design of the products that are touching many, many people's lives. But you also suggested in the paper that you'd written that the benefits or the spoils haven't been shared evenly. And that in particular, you said, and I'll quote you again here, it's my observation that many companies are pulling back from conducting rigor rigorous usability testing, even as they are investing more in UX research overall. So what are the factors that are driving this behavior? We've got more UX research going on, but we've got less happening when it comes to usability research. You know, is this a 
a symptom of that broader movement in UX circles to democratize design? You know, what's really going on here? Yeah, I think there are a few factors. And it's worth noting that because the field is growing so much and there are so many more UX researchers, uh, I'm sure that there are, is more usability research being done now than in the past. Um, and yet, I think the the focus on usability research uh, has waned a bit. I think the the value people place in it may uh, have waned a bit. I think the, the the challenge that people associate with it has definitely waned. And I think those are reasons for um, potential concerns. Certainly, something we should be paying attention to. And you know, it's funny you can look. There's longer data sets in the form of uh, Google Google Trends and the, uh, the Google uh, Ngram viewer, I'm sure others as well, but um, I've enjoyed playing around with those a bit and looking at how some of these concepts uh, have uh, shifted in, in their importance and the importance of those measures at the very least in the public mind. And what you can see is that uh, usability has declined over the years in terms of how much people are searching for it or writing about it. Um, at the same time, uh, UX research has really surged as a, as a phrase uh, that's searched for and written about. So uh, there, there does appear to be some divergence there uh, in, in those data. And, you know, I think that uh, really you can see it pretty clearly if you talk to folks. Definitely over and over again, you hear UX researchers say, what I want to do is more foundational research, more generative research. And, and I, I totally agree. We need a lot more of that. I think still the problem is often companies not doing enough of that and making these big bets on a designer or product owner or VP's whims, um, you know, we should be grounding uh, that process more in research for sure. And yet I think what's happening is, uh, and I've heard from quite a few uh, research leaders that they've been directed to move the usability research off of their researchers, off of their researchers towards contractors, you know, tend to be junior folks. Uh, it's a, essentially an entry-level job, entry-level researcher job at a lot of tech companies sending it. Uh, out to agencies. And, you know, we, we love doing usability research uh, at Answer Lab. We do tons of it. I think we're really good at it. We also do tons of foundational research. So, you know, well, it's kind of nice for us when people want to send us uh, all that work, but uh, not nice for us if they're doing it because they think it's less important for any reason. And then I think, as you already alluded to, I think the, uh, the democratization movement is also uh, part of the equation here. People saying, hey, you know, we can just give you some guidelines, a few tools, and you can do research that's just as good as a professional researcher, well, you know, then uh, you're probably going to have fewer researchers who want to be doing usability research and fewer leaders who want to be uh, hiring researchers uh, to do usability research. Oh, and then I'll throw in, I think, another factor uh, that's driving some of this is also the increased uh, availability of remote, uh, unmoderated platforms. And um, I uh, have uh, seen some product teams who rely exclusively on that kind of research, maybe with a contractor, you know, reviewing the videos and writing up the reports. Uh, so kind of a combination uh, of ways of really uh, taking it out of the hands of like a highly trained and skilled uh, researcher like you would have seen in previous eras, I think, in technology. I was thinking about this topic quite a lot in advance of our conversation. You know, I was thinking about your paper in particular and some of the views that you put forward in that. And clearly I run an evaluative UX research practice, so it's quite close to my heart as well, the importance of usability research. So I'm not coming at this from a uh, necessarily from a 30,000-foot view. I'm in the trenches here. And with the greatest respect to 
Steve Krug, who's been a phenomenal contributor to the field for a very, very long time and has done many great things to make usability research more prominent in industry and more accessible for people who want to be doing it to understand how it's done. But I couldn't help but wonder, has a book like Rocket Surgery Made, made Easy done more harm than good overall as it relates to how usability research is seen and the esteem to which it's held within the organization? Yeah, I think it's definitely had both positive and negative impacts, not like so many things in life. I think similarly, the now widespread belief that you only need to do research with six participants. In fact, what was great about Steve's book, what was great about the efforts by Jacob Nielsen and others to, to call out how much value you can get from a really small sample doing this kind of research is that it got a lot more people doing research. The problem back in the you know, the eighties and nineties is that people weren't doing research on many experiences. And those of us who were alive back then remember what digital experiences uh, were like, you know, can attest to the, the um, uh, that they were much less usable. Uh, our research is, is much more commonly done throughout the product life cycle. And certainly usability research is much more commonly done. So it's great. You know, I, I think those battles were won by those folks and, and they owe them a debt of gratitude for sure. Uh, they popularized research and they showed that it didn't have to be the super heavy, weighty, you know, massive and costly effort that would slow down your product uh, development and to, to a degree that it was really unacceptable to a lot of folks. So they, they won. But now today it's a different situation. Uh, you know, we have much better design standards and, and, uh, and at the same time, we're facing new challenges as, as technology in particular is penetrating all different aspects of our lives and evolving rapidly. Uh, and also we want to bring these processes outside of the technology sphere. So now I think we need to challenge ourselves and say, okay, well, the challenge isn't to get people to do research, it's to get more insights. And the truth is, it's actually not that hard to get a few good insights especially if your product isn't that good. It's hard. There are still really plenty out there, right? That need work. Mm -hmm. It's hard to get, it's hard to get the insights that are, are more subtle, you know, to find those more mm -hmm. subtle usability problems to find the ones that aren't a problem for the young, highly educated folks on average, but are potentially for other people, the things that come up, the edge cases, uh, the things that cause um, a little bit of friction, maybe don't lead to a complete failure but cause a little bit of friction. And I think as a field, what we need to do is, push ourselves. You know, let's make ourselves more valuable by finding more true usability problems, by finding those more subtle, those hard to find usability problems. And it's not even just about usability, but by, by chasing um, those more subtle and hard to find insights more broadly. You touched on this in your paper, I believe, and it's something that Dr. David Travis, who's a UK-based user researcher and has been in the field since I think around 1989, he's got a PhD in psychology as well. Um, he always advocates recruiting on the curve at least some users that are less competent than than the mean um, because obviously, and you would know this, and I believe you talked about it in your paper, that you are more likely to surface some of those more potentially subtle issues that you might not get if you're always recruiting um, in a particular demographic that is savvy in that way. Yeah, strong agree. Yeah, actually, you know, uh, I don't see a lot of teams doing that intentionally. I think there's more interest in inclusivity. I don't think there's, a, I'm not seeing a ton of awareness of how bringing in folks who are 
further along in the in the curve can uh, increase the success of our evaluative research in that way. I do want to uh, call out though uh, Nadine Levin when she was at Meta and Facebook uh, did some really great research in this area. I think uh, promoted it throughout the org with a lot of success and did publish some stuff. So you can find some of uh, her work and, and um, spoke about it as well. I think you can find some of that online. So uh, encourage anyone out there to, to take a look at, at some of her work in this area as well. There seems to be the school of thought and the, and the sort of trends you've observed around enterprise moving their usability research further down the experience scale and out to agencies that anyone that can string a few words together can moderate a usability test. And you've got, even gone so far and I'll quote you again now, you've said, I see that professional UX researchers often fail to rigorously adhere to best practices and moderation. So clearly, even people who have experience and not above, uh, beyond reproach here in terms of the techniques that they're using. And I was really curious because of your academic grounding and, of course, your expertise and as a practicing researcher previously and now as a person who manages a UX research strategy, what are some of those best practices? You know, what are the things that researchers are doing that they shouldn't be doing when they're moderating those sessions? Yeah, you know, well, it should be said, of course, everybody makes mistakes. Probably even the most experienced researchers make some mistakes in every interview. But uh, I have been surprised over the years, and I've had the opportunity to work with just many excellent, brilliant researchers uh, at many top companies. Uh, and yet, you know, you, you do see, I think it's, I've been surprised at the lack of adherence to some of these best practices, just simple stuff, you know, not, not asking leading questions, not asking questions uh, about text that is on the screen. <laughs> that uh, certainly changes the nature of the, um, the task for the participant in a pretty significant way. So I think, I think there's opportunities, even with pretty basic things, to ensure um, that there's uh, greater adherence. And I think what's interesting is I think very rarely uh, in, a, in a professional setting is uh, one's performance evaluated and scored and does one receive feedback. Um, Huge, yeah. Uh, yep. I've heard of some efforts uh, to do that. Uh, we, we have uh, some programs that support that at Answer Lab, but doing it at scale um, I think is, is uh, pretty rare. Uh, so well, time intensive, right? I mean, yeah. for someone to review a session that someone else is moderating, they either have to be there and watch it in real time, of which case there's a huge opportunity cost, or they have to watch it, you know, one and a half times or something afterwards in the recording to get a bit yeah. more time efficiency. But it doesn't scale particularly well. Yeah, I don't think it'd be possible without some technology solution to do it for all sessions. But I think what's striking is it. It seems like it's not really done much at all. I haven't heard many people talk about having good feedback systems uh, in their organizations. Um, and, and it's not just within companies, it's also within the training programs. I think there are very few training programs that uh, provide that kind of detailed feedback to help someone become a really strong moderator. Do you know, just listening to you talk about that, I couldn't help but think about if people are making mistakes, basic mistakes like leading questions in, in a usability uh, session context, and we're not setting up those feedback mechanisms to catch those and coach people on how to develop 
better skills over time and muddy the findings less over time. Like you said, perfect isn't the goal here. It's, you, you're always going to make mistakes, but the, the objective should be to get better uh, with the passage of time. And there's an increasing focus on foundational or generative research going on. Just how much of this poor technique, and this is an unanswerable question, but it seems to me at least there's a risk there that the bad hygiene that is evidenced in watching someone moderate a usability session may be leaking into some of the insights that are being driven out of that foundational and generational gener generative research which has a higher there's a higher cost of failure in insights not being accurate at that level yeah for sure i think the challenge uh when you move to the foundational generative side is uh, it's much harder to figure out you know what your outcome metric is it's easier in the usability space um to uh to just quantify those insights and to compare them but uh but nonetheless i think the same principles must apply and as you're pointing out the the cost can be a lot greater in the foundational uh, space so yeah and i think you know the other thing that comes to mind for me that i think is really critical in this conversation is also to recognize the limits of what we know you know we do have best practices there's been some some great research showing that skilled researchers do things in a lot of different ways uh, there are different opinions i mean we've all heard lots of different opinions uh on some key matters um and as a field, we need to figure out how can we support research to, to try to improve those best practices, to evaluate them, to turn our field into a field that is truly evidence-based. Maybe it's a cart before the, the horse, honestly, to think about how we really uh, rigorously improve practice in education and uh, in industry when we don't even necessarily know truly what, um, you know, what best practices are. I think we need to do it all at the same time. I think that's the best solution. Yeah, it's a delicate juggling act. Yeah. Hey, look, just before I bring the show down to a close, I'm just mindful of time. You know, how much of this focus on foundational research and, and like I said, the sort of deprioritization of usability research, actually, how much of this blame may fall at the feet of academics mm. who have become practicing UX researchers and potentially look at usability research as something that's beneath them? Yeah, yeah, I think that uh, that is definitely a phenomenon, and uh, it, it's a concern. Uh, you know, it, it's surprising to me. It's surprising to me how many people have come from academia and not brought the rigor of academia to um, their own education. It, you know, one of the things that I actually really loved about being an academic, uh, one of the things I loved when I was in grad school, is how much time you have to spend just learning. You know, you're constantly moving into a new area. And you're constantly, um, you submit a paper and then someone challenges you. So you, you have to go learn a ton about some new area so you can figure out how it fits with everything that you've been doing. So you become very good at finding quality information and putting it together quickly and knowing you know, how, how much you need to know, how deeply you have to, to go. And I just, I don't see that. I don't see people bringing that to the field. I, I hope it's coming. I think that, you know, as I mentioned, uh, when I was working on my PhD, I really didn't hear anyone talking about UX research. Now it's common. Clearly, the flow from uh, academic research to UX research has increased dramatically. So my hope is more folks will start to bring that desire to, to delve into the literature that we do have. There is a literature out there. Um, it may be somewhat nascent, and, and there may be still a lot of opportunities to improve it. But love to see more engagement with that literature and less blind acceptance of things like, 
you should five or six participants is sufficient for usability research, and that that's not you know that's not what the literature says. So I, I hope that will bring will bring that focus, and then in turn people will start to realize how much opportunity there is to do usability research better and deliver more insights, and that to do it really well um, is not just uh, challenging and, and uh, a skill that one should be proud of, but also that it's a story we're still writing and that we can continue to improve this field rather than just you know, leave it behind and focus on foundational research, which everyone loves is super fun, is super important. It's, it's a yes and, let's do both. Well, I think that's a, a really great place to leave things today. Jason, you're clearly someone who is highly skilled. You set the bar high and you've given a great deal of thought as to how this field can improve itself. Thank you for such a thought-provoking conversation today. I really do appreciate you sharing your stories and insights with me. Well, thank you so much for having me, Brendan. really enjoyed it. You're most welcome. It's been my pleasure. And Jason, if people want to find out more about you, what's the best way for them to do that? Oh, um, I would say follow me on LinkedIn, follow me on Twitter. That's where I tend to be um, most active in that order. Great. Thanks, Jason. And to everyone else who's tuned in, it's been great having you here as well. Everything that we've covered will be in the show notes, including where you can find Jason and all of the great stuff that we've spoken about. If you've enjoyed the show and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX design and product management, don't forget to leave a review and subscribe to the podcast. And also, if you feel that someone that you know would get value from these kinds of deep dive conversations, into our field share the podcast with them if you want to reach out to me you can find my linkedin profile link at the bottom of the show notes or you can just search for me brendan jarvis on linkedin or you can head on over to the website for the space in between which is thespaceinbetween.co.nz that's thespaceinbetween.co.nz and until next time keep being brave <laughs>